everyone, and welcome to Speaking of the Arts. Today you will hear the audio from our recent webinar on the topic of live streaming music, where we hosted several industry experts and asked them to talk about best practices for live streaming music. As mentioned in our last episode, speakingofthearts.com is newly launched and live, so if you head over to the site, you can also watch the video from the webinar as well. My guest speakers for the webinar brought an incredible amount of insight and experience to the table, and you will hear their bios in just a moment once the episode begins. However, I want to mention that based on direct feedback we received from our attendees, I have no doubt everyone listening to this episode will find something useful. So, if you are an independent artist, or a small, or even a large venue, and you are interested in learning how to think about live streaming as it pertains to your own unique audience, this episode is for you. Before we begin the episode, I also want to thank everyone who registered in advance for the webinar. And if you're interested in learning more about future events like this one, please go to epsteinco.com and sign up for our mailing list. Thanks for listening, everyone, and please enjoy this episode on live streaming music. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's webinar on live streaming. My name is Mike Epstein, and I am the founder and director of the national booking agency Epstein & Company as well as the podcast series, Speaking of the Arts. I'd like to thank all of our registered attendees today. Many of you tuned into our first webinar in May where we discussed the future of the performing arts and your feedback from that event was invaluable. And as a result, um, that really helped guide us to today's event. So we wanna keep hearing from you guys. Please take advantage of our attendee survey which will be sent to you via email in the next day or so. We are so excited for everybody to hear from our guest speakers, and I am confident you will learn a lot from them. And I'm just making sure Emmett Cohen can properly join us as he's coming online. There you are, Emmett, we're just getting started. Thanks. So since the beginning of social distancing, live streaming has been the one major performance opportunity available to our artists. We can easily spend all day every day now tuning in to watch artists of all types. And as a result, our industry has simultaneously become flooded with live streaming and confronted with many new challenges. For example, how do you compete for people's attention with so many streams happening? How do you determine the proper price for virtual tickets when your patrons are used to viewing content for free? What type of artist fee should you offer an artist for a virtual concert? Should you use Facebook, YouTube, and or Instagram to stream the event? Or are there better platforms out there? How do you make a unique experience for your patrons when you no longer have the ambiance of your venue? And if you're an artist, how do you make a unique experience for your fans who may be watching your show on a, smart, a, a small phone? And lastly, what will all this look like when live music can finally resume in person? These are questions these questions and many more are fundamentally changing how live music is presented and received. And we're not gonna have time to address everything on today's webinar. However, our goal is to share new ideas that address some of these basic challenges. So today, you're going to hear from Laura Simpson, CEO and co-founder of SideDoor. SideDoor's platform marketplace is built to connect artists with curators, venues, service providers, and audiences to make booking, ticketing, and payments easy, fair, and transparent. Next, you will hear from Andrew Berenbaum, founder and CEO of First Tube Media, 
a full service live stream content platform that makes it turnkey for brands to execute innovative sponsorship opportunities and programs. Next up, we'll hear, you'll hear from Eric Essex, Director of Programming at the University of Alabama Birmingham's prestigious Alice Stevens Performing Arts Center. Over the years, Eric has booked everyone from Herbie Hancock and Wynton Marsalis to Pat Metheny, Diana Krall, Yo-Yo Ma, Emily Lou Harris, and Oscar-winning actor Al Pacino. Next, you will hear from Nicholas Rizzotto, Director of Music Programming at the 92nd Street Y in New York City. And finally, you will hear from Emmett Cohen, winner of the 2019 American Pianists Awards and the Cole Porter Fellow of the American Pianist Association. I also want to thank my team member, Marie LeClaire, who is with us today to ensure things run smoothly. Thank you, Marie. And feel free to have your video going, Marie. As a reminder, we will do a Q&A at the conclusion of our event, so please submit your questions via the chat feature. I'm so grateful to all my guest speakers. Now it is my pleasure to introduce Laura Simpson and have her talk about Sidebar. Laura, take it away. Well, thanks, Mike. Um, wow, I just got chills when you read who Eric has booked. That's amazing. <laughs> um, it's great to be in such good company. I wish I could see all your, your faces and the attendance, um, but I, I trust that we'll have a good Q&A after this. Um, and I'm waving at you from Nova Scotia, Canada, which is off the map in most of people's um, views. But where uh, Side Door is a um, relatively small startup from Canada that um, we got into this because we saw a problem in the music industry that was the lack of access and uh, sort of a lot of gatekeeping when it came to live performance. And that is across the board, no matter what kind of um, music that you play. And so my co-founder, who's a musician, his name is Dan Mangan, um, and myself, who has worked in the industry for years, we got together to create a tech platform. And um, we did it all in live uh, for the first um, couple of years. We were doing like alternative spaces um, and helping people book and ticket those shows. So anything from a house to a barn, um, we were booking all over North America. And we probably did about 700, 50 shows over two years. It was, you know, a decent operation. Um, but since COVID hit, we switched to online shows using Zoom, first and foremost, because we were communicating over Zoom all the time. So we we're like, let's just try this and figure it out. Um, and so we kind of refined, refined, refined. And now we've done almost 230 shows since March 21st. So the number of shows has spiked quite a bit. Um, we've more than tripled the revenue for artists um, and we've increased our attendance, like something crazy, like 4,000%. So <laughs> it's been a bit of a game changer. We're one of the fortunate, fortunate few who have managed to figure out how to navigate this time but i just want to preface um what i say next with that you know it's a tender time and i know a lot of artists are still struggling with like how do i adapt and um, i don't want to innovate i just want to cope at this time and i get that i talk to artists all the time about those feelings and you know this is here for when you're ready um so i'll just share my screen and uh just get into this a little bit um Try to cut me off, please, Mike, if I go over time. So you're doing great. Um, I'll do that. 
Thanks. So our, our theory when we started was that the internet is oversaturated with broadcasters. So we actually dug into the interactive model. We use the meeting format of Zoom so that you can actually see the audience uh, while you're playing and they can see each other more importantly. Um, my co-founder always says it's sort of like um, blind casting when you're you know, playing to everyone on the internet um, all at once. It's really like playing in, a, in an airport and hoping for a donation. Um, and so we really focus on getting people's audiences together um, to make it interactive so you can peer into each other's lives a little bit. And um, we've really worked a lot with our, our hosts who are our in-person hosts who have switched to moderating Zoom uh, shows and helping people, you know, have Q and A's and engagement and, and moderate the chat and that sort of thing. So that's been a lot of fun to watch um, take place. And, fans coming in from all over the world. Um, we also have really worked hard in the last little while to ensure that we have security because it was a big thing I know for people to feel like when they're in this space to feel like they're safe. Um, and so we have now done this so the registration happens in the background. Um, you can link in your own Zoom account automatically through Sidedoor. And we're actually looking at um, now uh, doing a further integration with them um, coming down the line too. So it's getting even better as we go along in these weeks. Um, we do, like I said, booking and ticketing. So we kind of guide through the things that you need to know for the show, but then we also help by paying performance royalties out, um, taxes are sort of split out. Um, we can collect emails from the people who come to your show uh, you can manage comps. So if you want to invite people to the show that you don't want to pay, you can manage that. Um, and we can definitely do free events. And some people do that and they just throw up a donation link and that's totally cool. We work like a marketplace in that way. So um, we're working towards rebuilding our marketplace in that sense, um, where we can connect people with, you know, promoters, presenters, um, artists with service providers. So right now we have a program going to help um, people develop the skills to moderate these shows. Um, and really we're looking for the low overhead, high ROI kinds of shows where it's not just return on investment, but a return on engagement. Like you feel um, like you're really engaging with your audience. Um, and the money is actually um, split automatically according to the contract that you create uh, through our platform and the money's dispersed automatically after the show, no invoicing or anything like that. So there's a bunch of quotes. Um, I'm just gonna load in uh, the link here, which is this one on our, on our platform. Really all you need to know is um, we just take 10% uh, of the ticket revenue at this time. So we only earn if you earn cash. Um, and on this link that I'm about to share, um, there's a free PDF that you can download on our site that basically is a 13 page guide of how to make stuff look and sound good on Zoom. <laughs> so even if you don't do it with us, um, we're just giving a little freebie away so that, um, yeah, you can get a little sense of how to do it in this format. And I'm happy to talk about this after um, we get to the Q&A. Thanks so much, Laura. I'm sure that people are gonna have a lot of good questions for you um, when we get to that. So I'd like to turn it over to Andrew now and have him talk about First Tube Media and what his experience has been during this time. Go ahead, Andrew. Yeah, hey everyone. I'll, I'll wave as well to out to the uh, the ether of nobody uh, that I can see. Um, but uh, real real quick background. Uh, I've been in digital marketing and building startups for almost 20 years. I started really early at Yahoo, 
um, in their commerce division. And since then, I've been building startups uh, that kind of look for business opportunities where brands and agencies are basically looking for a build versus buy scenario and kind of creating platforms uh, that allow for brands and, and agencies to be able to execute programming, uh, kind of marketing executions and applications that they'd never be able to build on their own. And I got into music in a pretty random way um, within the digital marketing kind of matrix. Uh, my background really has always been focused on ROI and knowing how to acquire customers online. Um, I got this kind of dream gig phone call from a, a friend of mine saying, hey, do you want to run marketing for all the Grateful Dead Fairly Well Tour? It's the 50th anniversary. It's the last shows ever. Uh, my favorite music with my favorite guitarist in the world, Trey Anastasio. And uh, I, of course, dropped what I was doing, which at the time I was consulting for a VC firm trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And uh, next thing you know, I was in the music industry in a pretty cool way. Um, and, you know, it ended up being the largest music pay-per-view ever. Um, we drove over $14 million in sales uh, for that event. And it, it threw me into music. And I started asking a lot of questions as a digital marketer, trying to understand the ecosystem. And there were a few things that you know, I decided to kind of dig into and, and one was, you know, brands and their sponsorship dollars that they were investing at music events. There was a really lack of understanding of our ROI. Um, artists, you know, were seeing their revenue from recorded assets, you know, and, you know, because of streaming platforms exploding and, you know, that's only, only grown, uh, you know, the Spotify's of the world. And so they had to tour more often than ever, you know, to, to make up for that revenue. Um, and the other, uh, the other component to that, that I saw as a business opportunity was that vi digital video, uh, was kind of the, the largest growth in digital marketing by far brands were spending investing heavier in, in, in video and content. And so as I saw this branded video, uh, industry growing significantly, I thought, Hey, there's gotta be a way to bring this as a new revenue stream to artists and kind of the idea of connecting the dots between artists. Uh, into a new revenue stream and supporting them was kind of the motivation behind the business. And um, that's grown. You know, we were, you know, like most startups that I've created in my life, I, I'm a little early to the market. Uh, and this one, a good old pandemic has accelerated our, our, our opportunity significantly. Uh, you know, we've been, we've produced over a thousand live streams in the last four years. Uh, everything that we do is kind of the the opposite of, of kind of the, the side door solution, you know, in, in a different way, we're, we're premium. Uh, obviously our stuff is, um, you know, being received by, you know, for brands and, and for consumers. So most of our stuff is multi-camera, you know, one of our recent shoots we just did in the middle, middle of desert Valley with drones and eight camera shoot. Um, and the, what we're really good at is our background in digital marketing is we basically see this new uh, opportunity around live media. Um, it's very hard to gain, audience attention. And so we come in full service to brands um, in executing these really scalable new kind of new sponsorship format. And the, the goal here is to, you know, not only drive, you know, massive engagement, but really to show clear results on their sponsorship investment. And so we've been successful in doing that. We work with brands like MasterCard. We just had a sh an episode with Camila Cabello just yesterday uh, for MasterCard. Uh, you can check it out on YouTube. It's pretty cool. Um, Clients like Grubhub, Tito's Vodka, Synchrony, uh, and so on. And, you know, one of the things that Eric and I were talking about is kind of in understanding the audience is kind of what are the best practices, you know, whether you're a, a creator on your own or, or a brand or you're a IP owner and you, you own your own venues or, or what have you. 
and, and, you know, what we do is, and we want people to understand is, you know, that competition for attention is greater than ever. And so, you know, and that's become even more challenging, you know, with more people doing live streaming than ever before. And so how do you stand out? And so, you know, whether you're marketing your side door pay-per-view or, or another type of, you know, live, live content event, everyone should be able to understand that you're, the, the kind of the marketing framework of how to set yourself up for success to maximize what you're trying to achieve. And so we put everything in this framework of a pre-live post framework. And so pre-event, think of it as that you're going to be marketing a TV show, right? So just like NBC runs commercials before you're actually going to watch the show at 8 p.m., we take a similar approach in designing a way to drive awareness, drive data collection, get people to set the reminders so that they can get notifications automatically when you're about to go live and then drive as much what we refer to as tune-in moment, you know, that tune-in, how do you maximize that for, your, for, your, for what you're trying to do? And then after that, how do you continue the story um, through shoulder content and other types of content formats um, to keep that conversation going until your next episode? If you start going into an always-on framework and keep doing it and setting an expectation, you will see your engagement and you will see your viewership grow. And as you continue to invest in that, that allows it to open you up for different business opportunities, whether, you know, you're, you're looking to create your own IP or just grow your audience, capture emails and build your databases. Uh, there's a variety of different techniques to that. And so, you know, what, what we view kind of in this new digital live experience format, uh, I mean, we got into the business because we're massive music fans and we, we love live events. We believe that every single person that is investing in a live event should have a live media extension to it. I think Laura naturally has, has seen this opportunity to come to her business. You know, why, why show 100 people when you can show 1,000 people? Um, and I, we now are seeing that kind of help our the over, the overall industry, all of us collectively, uh, you know, as a business continue to grow. And, um, you know, what's cool about what's happened because of the pandemic is everything that we do now has a social impact component to it. Just in the last two months, we've generated over $2 million for St. Jude Children Hospital over 50,000 meals for frontline healthcare workers um, and continue to drive impact because obviously, you know, social impact is a, a, a big uh, initiative for everyone. I think hopefully that'll, that'll continue uh, even when we get out of this uh, mess. Um, I'll, I'll look forward to a Q&A. Maybe you guys will have some questions for me. Thanks so much, Andrew. Can I just ask you a really quick follow-up question? Um, is Please. there any sort of visual roadmap of the process you described for thinking about I have one um, live event coming up, live stream coming up, and I can visualize those steps that you were describing along the way for um, marketing it. Do you have anything like that you, we could maybe put in the after show notes or, or direct people to? Uh, yeah, I can, I can drum something up. Um, I, I have some stuff, but I, I maybe I, I'll, Eric, I'll send it to you. Maybe you could send it as a follow-up. Okay, thanks so much. All right. Uh, would help if I unmuted myself. I'd like to turn things over to Eric Essex and um, have you talk about how you guys are doing at the Alice Stevens Performing Arts Center. Take it away, Eric, and just be, yeah, there you go. Thanks a lot, Mike, and um, thanks for um, having me be a part of this, this illustrious panel. I was just listening to what Andrew and Laura are doing, and, I, and my first thought was I need to get in touch with you guys <laughs> to, <laughs> to help us out over here at the Alice Stevens Center. Um, it's, it's been a real challenging time, as I'm sure all of you know and understand. Uh, it's been the same for us here at the center. We've just been trying to um, 
pivot from, of course, our live performances and classes and, and the things that we do here normally to a virtual and a digital format. And having to do that on the fly, you know, and, and not really knowing exactly how to do it, no plan, no strategy, has been a, a challenge for us. But I think we've, we've risen to the challenge as best we possibly can. Um, we're a university presenter. We're a performing arts center on the campus of the University of Alabama, Birmingham. And uh, so we have the university um, as, our, as our backdrop and as, as part of our support. But uh, generally, we operate on, on selling tickets to shows. Uh, some of the artists that, that Mike mentioned are just a few of the, the many artists that we present over the course of our, our season, which, you know, generally we do anywhere from about 30 uh, or 25 to about 30 shows a year with featured artists. And then there are just tons of other educational things that we do as well. Um, there are four divisions to the Al Stevens Center. There's the Performing Arts Center. We also have a very, very uh, thriving, active art gallery, visual arts gallery that's right across the street from the center. We also have uh, uh, an arts and medicine program that is, that is uh, fantastic as University of Alabama also has a medical facility, huge medical facility, I should say, that is a part of the University of Alabama, Birmingham. So teaching um, a university for medicine as, as well as several hospitals. Um, and so we have an arts and medicine program that goes along with everything else that we do. And also our teaching, our educational wing, Art Play, has classes that we teach every um, uh, semester as well. So we have uh, several different components that are part of the Alice Stevens Center. What we've managed to do uh, in this time of, of COVID is to shift somewhat to uh, almost a completely virtual format. Um, we don't have the same kind of numbers that Laura has, <laughs> but uh, as a, as a perform small performing arts center, we've done, you know, I think remarkably well in, in the situation that we're in. We, we've had about 41 virtual events uh, since March uh, with over 1,500 devices engaged. And some of those devices have more than one person watching. So roughly about 2,000 to 2,500 people engaged since March. Um, we also have moved all of our summer drama camps to virtual. Uh, we have several presentations by our arts gallery called AVA. It's an acronym for Abrams Engel Institute for Visual Arts. And um, it has actually been the most active part of our, our virtual offerings. And um, just a couple of the events that we do, one is called Outside the Lines. It's a coloring night. It's a combination of audiences printing out um, uh, a piece of art. And they color while they listen to and ask questions of a noted feature artist. And we've had Amanda Brower and Stephen Evans. Uh, we also have a program called Inside the Arts. It's uh, interviews with national artists who show and discuss selected works in real time in a Zoom format. And we've had Thaddeus Mosley, Michael Ray, Bob Bondi, Rebecca Morris in that series. And we have a salon series where we visit the private art collections and galleries of local and regional art, uh, art lovers via Zoom. All of this stuff is, is, is via uh, the Zoom format. And they all begin with like an informal meet and greet and uh, cocktail time prior to the event, which actually winds up being really pretty cool. Um, and since we aren't able to go into our hospitals with our artists uh, at this time and, and we can't meet with students, we have uh, continued to engage our community with uh, virtual programs like Mental Health Mondays, um, 
and other videos which are on our website and they're all on demand so that you can go at any time and check out uh, any of the programs that we do. We usually record and have them on the website available uh, for viewing at your leisure. Um, we are also at the Alice Stevens Center uh, where I do the programming. We're trying to move to a live, totally live streaming uh, performances for the fall um, with the hopes that, you know, sometime in the winter, uh, late spring, we'll be able to open up the uh, facility for um, um, people to come into our halls again. But um, we've had some performances already. We had Shalea Frazier from the um, Lifetime movie, um, The Clark Sisters, uh, late, First Ladies of Gospel, who did a virtual concert last week, um, and also a Q&A afterwards, and it was in a Zoom webinar format. We had a really, really good attendance and the performance was amazing. This was the first time that we had an artist where we actually paid the artist to do a performance. Everything that we've done prior to has been um, pretty much uh, artists donating their time. Um, but we're, that was an experiment so that we can move forward with ticketing, ticketed performances later on in the spring. Um, we are also going to move to a drive-in format uh, outdoor drive-in format starting actually this month, July the 30th, where we're going to project a concert onto a, a huge screen on campus and uh, people will be able to drive in for those performances. And the, actually the first, the, the first one that we've done sold out in less than an hour. Uh, so, you know, we're really excited about that. And hopefully that's a format that we can continue with uh, moving forward into the future. Um, but I think that we're just like every other performing arts center that's out there right now. We're just trying to figure this out as we go and we're, we're you know, just kind of chugging along. Uh, hopefully I can get some ideas from uh, some of the panelists on how we can make our, our season and, and the things that we present a little bit better as we go forward. Great, thanks a lot, Eric. Nick, let's hear how uh, everything's going at the 92Y. I know you guys have had a fair amount of experience doing live streaming since March. Well, the world is uh, quickly falling apart, so we're, uh, we're doing our best to provide a soundtrack to it. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, it's, uh, it's been a really interesting uh, few months for us. I mean, basically overnight, and, and as you all know, the, um, the pandemic hit New York um, on the very early side. So, I mean, over the course of a week uh, in March, we transitioned from uh, as normal, which for the 92nd Street Y is... Um, concerts, um, classes of all sorts. You can take a pottery class, you can take a language class, a jewelry making class. Um, you can take swimming lessons, you can go to the gym there. Um, we have a renowned poetry center which presents readings um, uh, by, uh, by poets and, and novelists. All of that immediately moved online. So um, we became a, a digital media company basically overnight. Um, it, at the beginning for us, it was it was on the easier side. Our concert hall is set up to live stream things natively. So the first few performances, when we were still allowed to be out of our homes, um, flowed as normal, except without any audience in our hall. Um, things became a little bit more challenging in the uh, in what we've since become what we've since termed the the week of changing expectations. Um, there was a, a day where we could go out of our house to film a performer at his house in Philadelphia. 
And then the next day we weren't allowed to do that anymore. So he had to record his performance on his iPhone and send it to us by Dropbox. And that in short has been um, our method of presenting um, for the last uh, four months. Um, we, we experimented a little bit with the real deal live format um, and found that the technology was a little too unreliable, both um, using residential Wi-Fi streams and also um, using Zoom format, we found difficult for presenting music because it compresses audio so much. Um, so we elected to have people film their performances. They send them to me by Dropbox. We broadcast them. Um, we have been paying all of our artists fees. It, it, I'm embarrassed to say it hasn't been much. Um, but it's been something. Uh, I think that the really interesting questions are going to be those of sustainability. Um, you know, as the country starts to open up again, um, as our donors become uh, comfortable with giving money again, um, as our budgets begin to recover, um, what will the resulting landscape look like? Um, for us, we're thinking about presenting live streams into the fall. We're hoping we can do that from our hall again. Um, we're thinking that it may be uh, it, the, the, the business model that has historically been ours, which is a sort of flat fee engagement, may be disappearing for a lot of artists, uh, moving to something more like a, a back-end deal where we have a guarantee plus um, a, percentage of, uh, a percentage of revenue. Um, because this is uncharted territory. We're not going to have an audience in our hall. Our subscribers, um, you know, like everybody else in, in classical music, are largely older. Um, you know, many with, uh, you know, many have expressed concerns with um, being out among large groups of people. And of course, that's, uh, that's something that everybody's going to be dealing with around the country. Um, at the same time, artists need to make a living. You know, we need to make sure that, uh, that our artists are being supported, um, our managements are being supported, um, and the financial model to do that is gonna be a topic of, of some conversation. Uh, for us, we're also a union house. Um, so having conversations at the top levels of our institution with, um, with how the, the stagehands unions uh, agreements have been in the past and how they will be going forward um, has been another interesting topic of conversation. Um, thankfully, I think there's goodwill on all sides um, there. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a strange time. Um, we are experimenting with this in real time. Every concert we do, we do something different. We thankfully had some great successes. Um, Jonathan Biss's um, performance of the last three Beethoven sonatas at the end of March saw almost 280,000 people view it live. 280,000, you know, these are numbers we don't see in classical music very often. Um, several other streams have done almost that well. Um, these were free. Um, we've now moved into a, a ticketed um, streaming situation for all of our live streams. Um, we're charging a $10 ticket price. And that's been helpful in sort of defraying our cost, but you know we see less numbers. And so, another question for us is how do we market these effectively? Um, to Lauren Andrews' points, um, the the landscape is incredibly crowded. Um, differentiating our stream 
um, with one performer for somebody else's stream by another performer or sometimes by the same performer is, uh, is a challenge and it's something we're going to have to think about as an industry going forward. Um, if I'm hiring Emmett to do something this week and somebody else is hiring him to do something next week, how do we make those, um, how do we make those different? How do we make each seem special? Um, but there seems to be a lot of goodwill between wonderful managers, um, not so great presenters, and fantastic um, musicians in, in, in crafting uh, a new normal. Um, so I'm really pleased that we can come together in, as an industry and, uh, and craft this together. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. It's been really nice to be here. No, thank you, Nick. I, I really appreciate it. So uh, before we do our Q&A, we're going to have Emmett Cohen talk about what his experience as an artist has been like during this whole time. And Emmett, um, I'm going to, I'll let you take the reins, but it has been uh, really, really encouraging uh, personally just to see the success you've had doing live streaming. So I hope you can talk a little bit about what your experience has been like that and, um, and just go from there. Take it away. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike, and thanks everyone for speaking. Um, I guess I'm coming from a little bit of a different angle. I don't have an organization. I don't even have an LLC. I just have a piano um, and some good friends in Harlem. And uh, I guess when everything started getting canceled, we were like, okay, what are we going to do? Um, and as, the, as more and more things got canceled, we're like, okay, we this is something we have to do. So the first stream I saw was uh, on, by anybody online was Sullivan Fortner and Cecile McLaurin Salvant. And they just did a laptop setup kind of like this. And Sullivan was playing piano and Cecile was singing. And it was amazing. And what it did for people, um, it just made them feel so good. They were kind of writing requests. It would like, I could see there was a sense of community. Um, and the way that, the way that they, they interacted with the camera, with the audience, with each other, um, people just felt uplifted by it. And I said, you know, how can we um, s simulate that in a way and uplift people? So uh, the first opportunity we had uh, was, I was supposed to play at the, uh, the Lead Center in Lawrence, Kansas, and Derek Kwan uh, said, hey, man, why don't you just, you know, we'll pay for the concert um, and you just do a live stream and you just do it on your Facebook and, and, you know, it'll be something good for the world. Like we need this right now. And so we ended up doing it. Um, we set up like one, one uh, phone with the lead centers uh, live stream on it. And then a computer with, um, with my Facebook. And then we did another phone with my Instagram, just kind of checking out, you know, we had every device going and like every different angle. Um, and, uh, I think people really connected with it. It got a lot of shares, a lot of views. People thanked us. Um, I have somewhat of a built-in audience that I've been collecting emails after the gigs for the last seven years everywhere in the world. Um, and so I know those people were tuned in and those people were very grateful that we, we did this. Um, and then each, and it was successful on that Monday. We decided, why don't we try this again next Monday or kind of make it a weekly thing for for the time being. So we started doing it uh, every Monday and each Monday, like, like Nick kind of said, we, we made a little bit of an adjustment. Um, you know, the sound is terrible on the laptop. Um, the video is terrible on the laptop. Um, and so hours of staying up all night researching YouTube um, clips, how to do this from home. Uh, I think the, the, the 
most important thing for musicians is sound. And this is all kind of coming from like the home, um, the home streaming um, angle. And uh, so I bought a couple of microphones, uh, one, one, on the, one on the piano here and a couple of other ones, one on top of the drums and one, one for the bass and bought this mixer um, here, like a $200 Behringer mixer, stereo output. Um, the mics go into there, that goes straight into the computer um, and we can use that sound. And I learned about a, a, a I'm going to get a little technical here because I think this is what this, this, this is the most important part is the, the, the uh, open broadcast software. It's called OBS. And that uh, is a program for Mac or Windows. And that allows you to uh, filter audio and video text, anything else you'd like into this. It's a pretty complex program, but if you kind of get the hang, hang of it and do a little bit of trial and error, you can kind of get it. Um, to work for your for your scenario, and so they have an app too for that um, for for that program on the on the iPhone. It's called OBS Camera, and so all you do is download that app. It's like twenty dollars or something, and it has a pretty good video. It's not four K, um, but that combined with the audio, um, you can filter into to to this thing, uh, this program, and then take that stream key out. Um, this, I know it's a little technical for a lot of people in here, but if you take the stream key, you can put that right into Facebook or you can put that right into YouTube. Or in my case, I use a multicast um, software called caster.io. And that's, uh, I can, you know, it's, I think re restream.io, there, there's, there's different ones you can use, um, but you can put the stream key into that. And then from there, you can filter it out to a bunch of different places. Um, so I go to YouTube and I go to, um, Facebook. Unfortunately, Instagram is not um, able to handle any of that stuff. It has its own API keys and uh, you need to actually set up a phone to, to use Instagram, which I don't think is really actually set up for live streaming um, because they only let you stream an hour. All the other uh, programs uh, you, can, you, you can go to from a restream, multi-stream software um, include Twitch or LinkedIn. Um, there are a few other ones too, but I just use YouTube and, and, and Facebook. And then on the, fa on the Facebook um, end of things, uh, there is a technology they have built into their software called cross-posting. And I found it to be the most useful marketing tool. Um, that means that I can put my stream into my Facebook, but also link it out to other people's Facebook. So I know a few people are in here. Howard Stone is here from Vail Jazz. So when I do mine, we have a, we're in a cross-posting relationship um, on Facebook, which means that when I uh, go live, it can go straight to his page too, as if he's doing that. I know Ryan Patternight's in here too, and I do that with, with Birdland Jazz Club as well. And it's kind of mutually beneficial because, uh, you know, it, it creates content for their, for their viewers. And so, it doesn't come from my page, it's different from a share. Uh, it, it actually comes from their page. So if there's a little more firepower behind it, um, as far as the algorithms are concerned, a share, you might get a couple of likes or whatever, but if you go live from the page, people, get, the followers get notified and, um, and, and the comments and the likes don't add up between all the pages. They, they, they're unique to the page. Um, but the viewers, like the, how many viewers at one time are watching, they all add up. So you can see at the top of the, of the thing when it's live, you know how many viewers you have. And then the views all at the end, they all add up from all the different pages. Um, so I have a bunch of different cross-posting par partners um, that, we, uh, that, that are kind of on board each week. Some um, are bigger than others and some I actually pay. Uh, 
a fee to, to use and some are just grateful to have some content on their page. Some want to support us. Um, and so I'm constantly looking for those partnerships. Um, and that to me has been successful. My, my model has been to keep the whole thing free um, because I think it's also an investment period for us and for me, if I just kept it to, the, to my audience, it might, we know it might not be able to grow. Um, and all the shares and the likes and people telling their friends and um, you know, even if people just tune in for one song and they like what they hear and they might go to my Facebook page and press like and you know, come back another time. So um, my model has actually been to use kind of a Patreon um, type of thing. I thought that platform to be a little bit kitschy um, for me um, and for who my people were, um, who are mostly older um, performing arts uh, customers, I would say, patrons. And uh, those, 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 those people, uh, for, for them, I created this thing on my website um, and just an exclusive membership uh, thing. So kind of like a Kickstarter or Patreon model um, where I said anyone who signs up gets a vinyl record that are going to be ready next week of one of my albums. Um, so we printed that. There's also a membership uh, portal on my website of all the streams that, uh, that I've done so far, all the free ones. And then also I do private ones for these people using a YouTube unlisted link. Um, during the week, sometimes I'll, I'll do that and send them out to, to the subscribers. So it's like this private concert just for them. So for member supporting everything on Mondays and everything else that I'm doing, um, you know, I'll give kind of like an interactive thing and really respond to the questions and take some uh, requests and stuff like that and, and develop that personal relationship um, with, with those people. Um, and I have three membership tiers for that. There's a $150 level, a $500 level, and a $1,000 level. And I, I really felt, actually had this idea before all of the, all, all of the pandemic and everything hit um, that this is kind of the trend of the world. Everything's going to subscription. Um, and you know, that you can get a subscription candle box sent to your house, or you can get a vinyl of the week or vinyl of the month, or you can get, you know, clothes sent from a certain website. They know your sizes and you just get a subscription box every month and you can put on, you know, put the things on if they fit, you keep them. If not, you send them back and they send you some other stuff. Um, and I think that that's a good way to keep people engaged. I had a fear that if I did a, a monthly, um, a monthly one that it would give people more of a chance to cancel the membership. Um, especially after after the pandemic's done, but if it's a one-time thing, then that's that's uh, that's that's where my mind is, and that's where how we've been surviving in this time and making the concerts on Monday nights free to everyone. Now we're starting to have guests and stuff come in, and kind of making it a different variety show each week, and people are telling their friends and they're liking it. So that's what I'm up to. <laughs> Thank you so much, Emmett. So. Uh, if we were all together, this would be a time where I would ask everybody watching to give a big round of applause for all of our guest speakers. So you're going to just have to do that virtually and send your good vibes. We're starting to get some great questions here. So I'm going to go ahead and thank you, Will. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and um, read some of these questions to the panel. And I'll let you guys as a panel, as a, as a whole, just whoever wants to take, uh, take one of the questions or we can spend a minute or two on each question if it needs more than uh, one person to answer. And uh, the last thing I'll say is um, anybody who's here as an attendee and you have a question, do, do not hesitate to uh, go ahead and post it because you know, we want to take advantage of the great expertise this panel has to offer. 
Okay, so uh, Will Ramsey had a question for Eric uh, when Eric was speaking. He asks, have you found live streaming to be an effective adjunct for your virtual education programming, or do you mainly stick with registration only slash student restricted events? Yeah, we found it to be very, very um, um, beneficial for us uh, moving forward. Um, we have some events that have been um, restricted more or less to our members and those um, have been, um, Mike, the Q&A that we did with, with Delphio was one of those. Um, it wasn't open to the public, it was just for our members and they had to you know, register and then we had to send them the Zoom link and, and those kinds of things. You know, I like those things, it's perks for our members, but generally in this time, I think that it's really important for us to try to be as, um, to, to remain relevant and just to keep content flowing out to the community. And, and so that's what we try to do more so than anything, even with our educational things, those are the ones, those are the things that people have to pay for and, um, you know, have to register for, but everything else we've tried to make um, within the, the confines of, of Zoom where we can only have uh, 300 people we've tried to make as, as many of those open to the public as possible. Now we did start doing the, the Shalea Frazier event. We did do a webinar through the university who has one, you know, the, the big format where we could have up to 5,000 people. So we do have that uh, possibility for some of our larger events, but we wanna try to make as many things free and moving forward in the future, we will start to, to do more ticketed uh, events. Great. So the next question, this is for the whole panel. Peter Stevenson asks, can someone speak to solutions for musicians playing together virtually from separate locations? I know latency has made this virtually impossible, but I've just learned about software called Jack Trip, developed by musician Dan Tepper. Is anyone on the panel aware, aware of this solution? And I'll let the panel answer that, uh, but as a side note, Marie LeClaire this morning sent me a link to a NPR story. Was that a new story, Marie? Um, you're, you're muted. Yeah, it was uh, part of the Jazz Night in America right. series on NPR. Yeah, and it was specifically about this software that Peter's asking about. So does anybody have any experience with that? Because um, I only just learned of this software this morning. <laughs> I mean, what, what I could say, you know, from our side, you know, we've been We've had, we have remote production systems. We ship them all over the country as we're trying to capture, you know, artists, you know, remotely. And the only way that we're able to get live, live to work is, you know, we would create the monitor through an AirPod and we would then have a singer with a, a musician. It was very difficult to have two musicians playing at the same time, especially strings. Um, and so we have tried some software and, I'm definitely going to try Jack Trip here next because we've been trying to solve this. Um, but we've most of the stuff that we've had to do, where if if an, if an artist is going to be playing on strings, we can they can just kind of play without listening, and then and then the singer has to go you know along with that music. Um, but you know anything that we've been doing in a collaborative standpoint has been taped to live where we can post produce it. Yeah, that's the only thing that I've heard of too. I, I know Dan personally, and I've seen he's done some stuff with 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 other musicians, and it seems like it's pretty good. Um, but you know, there's something about playing live music 
with somebody in person that I don't think can actually be replicated um, digitally. And I think as good as the technology gets, there's always going, it's always going to be more of a novelty than like an actual um, experience playing with somebody live. Um, but it's, it's, it, it might be cool. The only thing is, I don't know if you can, you can do it with more than two people. Um, and once there's like bass and drums together, like those, the, the, the timings have to be like so exact. Even if you're too far away from, from if the bass player is too far away from the drummer on stage, then the, the, the hookup can be, can be uh, off. And so I, that's, that's a tough thing, but, but I, I've seen Dan do it and, and I, I would like to try it, but I haven't ventured into it yet. Yeah, uh, we'll post the video from NPR that talks about that technology. Maria, if you got a second and you can just put that link in there, I think people would really like to check that out. Okay, moving on. Catherine Colgrove asks, since it's such a crowded digital landscape, I'd love to hear thoughts about collaborations among presenters for a stream slash exclusive broadcast to create a virtual tour with geographic audience boundaries or to amplify a single ticketed event where each presenter receives a portion of ticket sales based on the link the audience member uses to access the event. So that's a, that's a really interesting idea. Um, panelists, do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> um, we're in the process, it's in our development queue to do geogating for shows. So essentially that looks like, you know, like if you're in Canada and you try to watch Saturday Night Live, they're like, nope, you can't watch that here because NBC doesn't want to allow that to happen. So um, it essentially blocks people who are not in the chosen uh, show creators market uh, from seeing a show. So you can then virtually tour your show. Um, we actually had early talks with a ballet company who wanted to go across Canada, like province by province and do an interactive presentation of their, their dance um, show, you know, with sort of like a color commentary by the producers with the local ballet community. And they were gonna geogate it along the way. So, um, you know, that's when we started looking at how to do that. And it's actually not terribly hard. So um, yeah, it's part of our plan to do so that, I think everybody's at the point where they're like, oh, now everybody's gonna see everything all the time. How do we prevent exhaustion, right? So um, yeah, and we can also fold in uh, promoters for each specific market um, so that they can take a cut for those particular shows. Alrighty, um, Roxanne, uh, I'm, I'm I, at the risk of mispronouncing your last name. I'm just gonna leave it to your first name. So Ro Roxanne asks, what is the audience feedback to paid events? This is a huge topic. And just from hearing our guest speakers today, there's a wide range of thoughts on paid versus not paid. Um, I know everybody here has some thoughts on that. So I'd love to hear what you guys have to say and what your experience has been doing paid ticketed events virtually. I'll, I'll say that the audience response um, for the 92nd Street Y has been largely very positive. Um, the feedback that we've got that has been less so has been a bit more um, related to the sort of infrastructure to buy tickets. Um, obviously, it's an imperfect solution for us because our ticketing software and, and processes are much more um, geared towards your presenting a ticket to an usher. Um, so that's been something that our marketing team has done a really good job addressing um, with little sort of modifications but it's been a challenge. And so too, people have 
such a high bar when it comes to spending $10 these days. I mean, you spend 10 bucks and you get a Netflix subscription and most presenters that I'm aware of just don't have the infrastructure available um, to make anything that looks even remotely as good as that. Um, so that's been setting expectations um, has been another challenge for us. But as far as the streams itself, um, the audience has been really responsive in a positive way um, and forgiving of the occasional technical uh, fumbles um, that that have happened uh, along the way. So, but it's generally a really positive thing, I think. Does anybody else want to speak about the topic at large of how to charge ticket prices for virtual streaming events? Yeah, I, I have one comment. I know that um, Mike, you and I talked about this earlier, where we're considering uh, the subscription uh, model um, and not quite sure how to move forward on it. So we actually did a survey and we have about 77,000 people on our email list and we had about a 10, 10% open or 10% of that uh, open rate out of that, I think of like maybe eight, 800 or so people responded. And uh, one of the questions was, would you pay a nominal fee to experience virtual event, events um, and uh, have access to on-demand content? And we had almost 400 people say no. And um, about an equal number, about 350 people said yes, and 19 people did not answer. The main reasons that they gave were due to financial obligations and it would depend on who the actual artists or speakers were. And the one uh, response that was kind of interesting was uh, virtual fatigue. So, you know, just people, I think, getting tired of, of watching performances and events on screen. So we are, you know, actively trying to, to move forward with more paid virtual content. And I'm, I'm really kind of um, excited about the possibility of doing a subscription uh, based series or subscription-based model if, if our public is willing to, you know, pay for something like that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the one thing I'll, I'll say to all this, you know, you know, and, and you're seeing that in, in your survey, and it's always great to get data, you know, from your, your audience. You know, you're, you're, when you're talking about paid content, you're not competing against other people that are doing what you're doing. You're competing against Netflix subscriptions. You're competing against Hulu subscriptions. You're competing against any sort of paid content. The level of requirements for someone to pay for a premium type of content experience, right, which we all have a few of those investments that we make on a monthly basis, the bar is very high, right? If you think of what pay-per-view was before the pandemic happened, right, the only pay-per-view that worked was boxing, UFC, right? It was these one-off, very unique things that worked in that environment. Pay-per-view is working right now because none of us can go have that experience live. I think that pay-per-view still has a model for performance-based content, but it needs to be more than that. And so when you're thinking about structuring your run of shows and driving value, you have to come up with something unique, whether that's providing a, a unique Q&A environment. We've done a bunch of pay-per-views for films where the talent is providing a Q&A or watching together type of experience, things that they wouldn't get in a live experience and are worth paying. Another game mechanic lever, call, call whatever you want, incentive is to tie yourselves with some sort of social impact 
that everyone knows, you know, is going to not only your business, but also to a cause that everyone cares about. But realize you're competing against Netflix for something to pay for something that you're going to produce. Yeah, that's great. Um, Andrew, that's a really good segue because I've got a couple questions which all kind of go under this category of how do you compete for attention and what do you do to differentiate your stream and everything like that. And um, thanks for that feedback on that. Um, does anybody else have any thoughts on that topic as far as uh, using this new medium not as a replacement for a concert stage, but instead using it as something entirely new? Um, and, and what might have you seen works for that? So again, it's not to replicate a live concert as we know it, but instead offer an experience that caters to this digital format. Does anybody have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, to just extend on what I was saying, you know, the, the main, the, that's exactly what fans want, right? You know, what, 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 what this world, what digital has provided is, is, is a new format of access to people that they are fans of, right? That they look up to, that they want to understand more about, right? In the world of social media, we're suddenly gaining more access to talent than we ever have in our entire lives. Some people say that we're achieving too much access. When you start thinking about, again, to paid environments, you know, I want to see Emmett play, but I also want to see Emmett tell a story about why, you know, about behind the song, maybe in a unique way and provide a unique opportunity and vision, you know, that I wouldn't gain in going and paying a ticket and, and watching him in a concert hall. And so, you know, how does talent rethink how do they provide exclusive access to them and, and who they are? Uh, it, it, it has to be part of the equation, right? And so that, that's kind of a lot of what we think about you know, from our programming, we view access as an incentive for brands. And so while we're doing these one-to-many broadcasts of performances where we engage millions of people, we're then using those exclusive experiences to have a meet and greet with, with an artist. Uh, we're working on a program uh, with Grubhub coming up where you're gonna have, get to have a meet and greet. We use as an incentive. They drive email capture out of that as, you know, part of a sweepstakes promotion. And so, the access piece, I think, is a key driver to uh, people wanting to, to, to pay money. Yeah. Anybody else before we move on to another question? Uh, I just want to say I agree with Andrew 100%. The Delphio Marsalis um, Q&A uh, Q that we did a few weeks ago with, with your artist, uh, Mike, was the, the feedback that we got the next day was just glowing. And it was all about having an opportunity to ask him questions. Now, it also had to do a lot with the fact that he is, is a brilliant historian and so knowledgeable about the music and such a, an incredible personality that that can't overlook that. But the fact that you got to ask Delphio, Delphio Marsalis a question and, and he responded was uh, definitely a selling point. It was to date our biggest um, virtual event. Yeah, I, I could give one example. Uh, in comedy, I know I know uh, this, art, this comedian, Bert Kreischer, uh, who's a pretty crazy guy. You guys check him out. But he runs these pay-per-view Zoom bomb experiences. You know, he's kind of played off the Zoom bomb thing where you're paying and you have an opportunity where he actually selects your tile and then you get a one-on-one -on -one with him for a few seconds. And you're getting also this moment where you're being highlighted in front of the other 500 people, right? And people are paying just to be have the opportunity to get that one-on-one -on -one with him just for a split second where he's probably making fun of you in front of 500 people, you know? So, you know, 
sometimes that's what people pay for. We made fun of, right? Yeah, we 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 call it um, one artist that we did that with, and and they they likened it to having all of their front row fans all at the same time looking back at them. That's, great <laughs> that's a great analogy. That's that's pretty fun. Yeah, Eric, was the was the Delphio thing just for your subscribers or just for your members, or who who actually got to see that? It was uh, predominantly for our members and subscribers. Uh, we we ended up at the last minute because people were RSVPing to it and we had some sp some slots left. And so I went on, well, we all went on social media and I went on my personal social media, social media and opened it up to members of the public. And, um, um, you know, we got a substantial number of people from just the general public who also joined in as well. But it started off as a member event. That's cool. Yeah, I've done a couple of those things. I did one yesterday for Stanford Live, um, just for maybe 10, 15 people. And I also did one for uh, for Jazz Lincoln Center a couple of weeks ago. And just engaging the, that audience, I think people feel very special. And like Andrew said, you know, you're like in my living room and here's the piano and we're, you know, I'm playing and talking and just answering questions. And it's, it's, it's a, something that people wouldn't usually get. And since it's in my home, it feels even more personal. All right, well, uh, let's just take the time to do uh, just two more questions here because I want to be really, uh, I'm very conscious of all, all of our guest speakers' time today. There's a, there's a couple of questions about digital rights, copyright issues, clearing rights. Um, I'm going to lump that all together. So, so the question kind of becomes, given live streaming, how do people think about licensing and royalties and rights for performing artists? Yeah, I mean, I, I could speak to that on a couple of fronts. You know, one, don't cover dead guys or girls um, because uh, those are the people that actually care about um, coming after you. Um, and so, uh, but, you know, in all seriousness, you know, uh, we do lots of clearancing for brand usage um, all, all the time. And I think, you know, the live live uh, framework, most of the platforms are set up with their, with their kind of uh, contracts with labels. And so, you, you won't have an issue uh, on live live. It's really once you get to the recorded format um, and you you want to keep content up that you need to uh, address that. Um, and obviously if you own your own music and your own publisher, you're, you're in the clear as a talent. But if you are a venue or a partner or promoter and you want to use that content for further, um, there's uh, the labels uh, didn't really have many rules over the last few years around licensing. And it was kind of the wild west. Um, I've had experiences where uh, we've had um, labels ask for five grand each side for every song and we come back and they, so they asked for 50 grand, 60 grand for a show that we had. And we said, Oh, well, we have five grand and they said, great, we'll take it. And so they kind of were just kind of looking at us found money. Um, I think with what's going on, um, you know, all the platforms have matured with their, with their licenses. YouTube was kind of the leader in that they'd already had these deals in place. Uh, Facebook just got them. Um, Twitch as doesn't have them, and, and you know, with all the DJs, you know, that flooded Twitch, you know, with with what happened with the pandemic, are now being shut down on anything that's recorded, and so you're starting to see the whole market evolve, um, you know, into, you know, it's kind of a, it's a very, it's still a gray area out there uh, in a lot of ways, and it's just kind of, you know, if you if you want to be safe about it and not, you know, pay. Uh, YouTube's a pretty good platform to be safe on because there's rules there. They notify the publisher owners automatically through their content ID systems and they can claim it. And when they claim it, 
all that's happening is that they're the publishers saying, Hey, I want to monetize this content. And so that they get the revenue share on the ads that are going to show up on their content. And so that's basically what happens on YouTube, the other platforms. Um, you know, if you really want to have private usage of that content, you got to pay and, and, and work with, you know, go through the wonderful world of publishing clearancing. Yeah, I've had some interesting adventures in this land, um, working in multiple markets, Canada, US, um, Europe, and UK, um, which all have different rates. And it's a, you know, broadcast license for online. And, you know, Andrew's right, yeah, don't, if you play cover music, it's a different game. But even in Canada, anyway, the body that um, manages performance royalties would have the artist who's only playing their own original music submit and pay as well. And it's kind of lunacy, but also we're trying to keep everything above board and ensure that the right rules are followed. So we're in the process of trying to make it as easy and frictionless as possible. But um, what we've learned is that it, it does depend on where the audience is watching from. Um, and it also matters, uh, you know, basically, yeah, like what your set list is, what you're playing and that sort of thing. So um, it can be tricky, especially depending on the platform, as Andrew mentioned, we, you know, if you're working on Zoom, they have nothing like this set out. So yeah, be careful. Yeah, and just um, jumping off on that for from the classical music perspective, of course, everything is a cover. So um, I have had to be very careful as it relates to sync rights. Um, we have done some live streaming on YouTube, which does have a much better system for managing this. Um, but for anything else that we're doing, uh, whether it's on live stream or Facebook, it has to be done manually. And by manually, I mean, I have to talk to the publisher and negotiate a deal. Um, thankfully, I've generally found uh, the classical publishers that we work with um, very understanding of the circumstances and, and as, as Andrew mentioned, I think sometimes they come with some pretty ridiculous pricing at the outset and then are happy to take what you tell them you have. Um, but it is not an insubstantial amount of work um, uh, because, you know, as, as, as those of you who present classical music know, even figuring out who has the rights to something that's under copyright is a constantly moving target. And to get all of them to agree if there's multiple publishers or estates involved, um, can take a lot of time to get folks on the same page. But, um, you know, I, I'd rather do that than tell all of our artists that they have to play everything in the public domain. Um, you know, that, that is more limiting to me. So I'm happy to do the extra legwork, but there is legwork to be done if, um, if you're playing stuff in, in copyright land. Great. So uh, this will be our, our last question here, unless anybody wants to sneak in one more. Um, Mike Casey was asking for ticketed live streams that are a revenue share, are venues or platforms willing to share the ticket buyers emails with the artist post show? Which is a, it's a good question because uh, I've had a lot of artists ask that question as well. My, and I'll let the speakers speak for themselves, but my guess is that it might be a case by case basis, but um, I don't know if anybody has any experience with that, with sharing emails for ticket, from ticket buyers. Uh, for us, that's an absolute no-go. That's in violation of can-spam laws, or at least my institution's um, uh, interpretation of what can-spam means. Um, if somebody gives us an email, we don't share it, uh, full stop. 
Yeah, it's interesting. We've had a lot of pushback from people who use Eventbrite, for example, who get all the emails when they do events that way. And they're like, why aren't I getting all the emails? I'm like, well, there's a law that prevents you from <laughs> sharing that. And even we don't use the emails. We have one transactional email that we can do after they buy a ticket. So we do a post-show blast and we allow people to basically you know, send their mailing list link and all that, whatever they want to say in the email, essentially. Um, but we did just build something that allows people to check a box when they're buying a ticket just that says, you know, I'd like to share my email address with Al Pacino, you know, like whoever it is. So it it's a little more uh, incentive when they see the artist's name. And we have had a lot of good uptake on that of people volunteering to share. I definitely let Al Pacino send me an email. <laughs> yeah. What's he doing these days? Well, all right. Uh, I think that just about does it. I'm going to thank our guest speakers one last time. You guys were amazing today with your time, and I hope we provided a good platform for discussion for something which is admittedly in, in its infancy. So uh, I would imagine if we did this a month from now, we'd um, have completely different things to talk about and a little bit more experience under our belts. Thanks again to all the attendees for registering, and thanks a lot, guys. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye, everybody.